Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, a Baptist perspective on history, culture, and theology. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today we're interviewing a special guest. Trey Ferguson. So I met Trey, well, I've never spoken to him, but we met on Twitter, the mean streets of Twitter, (laughs) where uh, I was struck by his lack of, he doesn't care to make people feel good. Take that however you want, but he does speak the (laughs) truth, (laughs) which in the world we live in, people that are honest uh, are hard to come by sometimes, Uh, but at the same time, still a Christian. So I I heard him on a podcast with Robert Monson on Subculture Inc., The Hive. If you haven't checked that out, you can. And so I I invite him on here to the goal is give a perspective that most of our listeners aren't really engaging with fairly similar beliefs to everyone listening, but just in a different sort of cultural setting, ministry setting. And so I think our listeners need to, um, well, to put it bluntly inside of their bubble, myself included. And so that's what this is about. And I think we're going to find a lot of the divisions that we've set up are artificial at best and unbiblical at worst. So, Trey, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, give us a little bit of your backgrounds and your ministry. Yeah, most definitely. I do want to start out by saying that uh, you, you said you said I, I don't necessarily care to make people feel good. I would I would critique that I do want people to feel good. I'm just not concerned with them being comfortable. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's what it comes down to. At the end of the day, like, yeah, I want, I want you to feel good eventually. Um, but eventually. I do, uh, yeah. There, there, there's a level of discomfort I, I, I think is good because at the end of the day, it's it's uh, pressure and discomfort that is a sign of growth. And a lot of people have gotten so comfortable that we've stopped growing. You know, um, hmm. I think there, there's a lot to be said about that. Um, but with regards to introducing myself, I think you cover most of the bases, man. I'm Trey. Um, I don't really care about what you think. No, I'm just joking. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm uh, an elder at the Refuge Church in Miami, Florida. I probably shouldn't have said that because y'all going to send all sorts of angry emails when this is done, but whatever. Have at it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I uh, grew up in the Baptist tradition, but like the Black Baptist tradition, which is often a little different in a lot of senses, uh, just that the way they approach things and, and historical black theology comes from a different standpoint. Uh, as I got older and got serious about my faith and I was off in college and everything, I started attending uh, different churches. You know, I've, I've been, I went to an Episcopalian school, so I'm familiar with that tradition or whatever. But when it came time to uh, go in my ministry training, it was in a non-denominational setting but most of the people around me grew up in the Baptist tradition as well. It kind of folded into a, I guess I would best describe it as like Bapticostal. You know, at, at one point <laughs> yeah. we did flirt with the the, the, the Church of God. Um, so I, there's a lot yeah. of Pentecostal elements to not only my theology, but my like theopraxy, like how I do things and all of those natures. Um, but at the same regard, I am, as I, I like to put it, aggressively non-denominational. Uh, not in that I, I don't I don't frown upon people who belong to denominations, but where I'm at is that I like to find the synthesis between different people. You know, okay, so where where's the common ground that we have? Because I can't point to a single instance in church history, like from the first documented churches in the Book of Acts, that at any point was there unity on every single issue. 
And yeah. the advent of like denominations and all those things didn't come about till a later period in history. It's not to say like, like I, I believe there's anything like wrong with it. I just don't feel the need to pick a, a, a sign, you know. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, I think the only difference between denominations and gangs is colors. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we've many churches have split over the colors of the carpet or the paint hey, on the wall. So that, I believe that it, man. I believe it. Rep your set. Do what you got to do. So you say you grew up in the black church, black Baptist tradition. What's the difference? Isn't is like what's the difference between a black church and a white church? Isn't that like a man-made division that Christians shouldn't buy into? Uh, to a degree, yeah. When okay, so yeah, that's a couple of different questions. When you say isn't it a man-made tradition, the concept of black is man-made, right? The, the race is a fairly recent invention. Like when you look at history, it didn't come about until the 15th century, right? Uh, Henry the Navigator out in Portugal starts sponsoring expeditions in the West Africa. They start bringing back people, and um, I forget the 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 name of the actual explorer and guy who documented all names starts with a Z, Zorava or something of the sort. Um, but they start classifying all of these people that they're meeting in different groups. Um, and they haven't really done the legwork to find out who belongs to what ethnicity, but then they start ranking them. It's actually the first time we have a concept of race as we know it. Ethnicity has always been there, right? Like that's in the Bible. Right, you have right. the Hittites and the Amorites and Parasites and all those things, but you don't start hearing, there's no black people in the Bible. There's no right. white people. That, that stuff doesn't exist. There's ethnicities and races. So with that regard, like, yeah, it's a, it's a man-made thing. That being said, it's a thing, <laughs> you know, whether or not men made <laughs> yeah. it is it's a no, thing. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about like, oh, is, is, is that, uh, something like sinful and, and, and mm-hmm. uh, in part, like the origins are in sin. Uh, a lot of the things we do have origins in sin. Matter of fact, the black church in and of itself, the oldest black denomination is the AME church, right? Which happened when Richard Allen was worshiping in a regular church. Like before there were black churches and white churches, he was worshiping with white people up in, uh, I think Philly or something, but he was trying to pray at the altar and they try to drag him up to the balcony. He walks out, starts his own church, becomes the African Methodist Episcopal church. So when I say black church tradition, I'm talking about that tradition that was born out of black people not feeling welcome in fellowship and they start their whole thing. And um, it's a very rich tradition with a very uh, robust theology, uh, very robust worship practices that are in a lot of respects different than what a lot of white people experience <laughs> in, in, in their church communities. And um, there's a lot of, Overlap in the theology, obviously, like we're talking about the same God for the most part. But when you look at where the black church was born from, um, there's definitely a different hermeneutical lens that comes into play when we're talking about like how, how who have we needed God to be based on our experience? Because it's a very different thing. It's a, it's a very different thing than belonging to a dominant culture. Um, yeah. That's and, interesting. That comment right there reminds me of because a lot of people are going to struggle with that. Um who we need God to be depending on our experiences as if there were more than one God. But right. it reminds me of, of Hagar when she's treated differently by Abraham and she's cast out into the desert. And as a result of her being cast out, she has a vision or, and she sees the angel and she names God. Right. right? She calls him the God who sees. Absolutely. Same God as the God of Abraham. But she saw God in a way that Abraham probably never saw. Absolutely. And it was only because of her experience that she was able to see that, like you said, a hermeneutical perspective. Uh, so I think people sometimes get 
they get uncomfortable as if I think what they're hearing is that the Bible can mean anything you want it to mean. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's good. Well, e- even, even so when, when you say the Bible can mean what, what you want it to mean, like, I think it's very important that we acknowledge. And this is something that a lot of people, uh, particularly those of us who identify as conservative in our theology, we, we struggle with this concept, but there is no such thing as an objective reading of the Bible. It does not exist. Right. And I think, we kind of cheat ourselves a little bit when we don't interact with people who have a different experience with God, right? If you look at, um, there's at least like 16 different names for God in the Bible that I can be talking about, like the Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah DC, Jehovah Rapha, all those things. And they all describe a different aspect. And the fact of the matter is that depending on what station you occupy in life, it's going to depend on which aspect of God, like what characteristics of God you lean on the most to get to where your station is. So um, historically, one, one thing that is tied together most believers at some point in time is the idea of God as a liberator. Um, and that word scares people now because you think of liberate, you start thinking of liberation theology and everything, which is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but at the same token, it's, I think when we think about the fact that the Puritans who first came over here also view God as a liberator from tyranny over in England. And, and they view England as their uh, Egypt and America as their promised land. Like, it's a very common thing. But the moment that you're no longer in that situation, um, all of a sudden God, kind of shifts for you. You don't need him to liberate. You need him as your sustainer, as your guide. Um, That's not the experience for everybody here in America. So when we talk about the different traditions, the black church and the white church, you have to think about a people who historically, like the first black churches were still at a time, there were black Christians during slavery. After emancipation, there were still black people under Jim Crow and under all sorts of other things during the civil rights movement. they needed God to be somebody in order to make it through the situations uh, yeah. that they were in. That was markedly different than who other people needed or saw God as, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think it, that's helpful because it shows that there's not one Christianity for black people and another Christianity for white people. There's one Christianity that people can see from different angles. You know, there's one God, as the Bible says, yeah. But there's different perspectives. And I think that's what, what a lot of people are missing when they refuse to acknowledge the uh, even the existence or the necessity of a black church. Like you said, it was necessary to exist. They're missing what they can learn from it. Yeah, I think um, a lot of that has to do with the, there is a certain disadvantage from looking at the Bible from one way and one tradition your whole life. Because for me, like I've had to have my feet in a couple of different places um, and, and going to school. I've yeah. been to, to conservative evangelical seminaries. I've been to historically black seminaries. Um, and and it, it's allowed me to see a, diff- a few different things. But my question is like, what I want to challenge anybody listening to this is why does that make you so uncomfortable when the communities that have identified with God have always been diverse enough to the fact that there are four different accounts, four different gospel accounts in the Bible. And yes, there's a lot of overlap, but there's also some differences, right? Like John is classified differently than the other three gospels and other three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all written for different audiences and because they all need Jesus to be somebody different. Somebody needs him to be the fulfillment of uh, the Jewish prophecy. Somebody needs him to be divine. Somebody needs him. And they emphasize different things depending on uh, the station that they happen to occupy. 
And when you really think about what that means, I think it helps you to understand how this came to be. So we don't have to be offended at the fact that a black church exists uh, any more than we have to be offended that uh, a South African church exists or uh, uh, an Ethiopian church or anything. Uh, I think of anything that speaks to the magnitude of God, that he's able to reach so many different people in so many different contexts. And it's been that way from the beginning because the canon that we hold, the 66 books that we hold have at least 40 different perspectives in there. The gospel yeah. accounts alone is four different ones, you know? And when you really think about that and hold that fact, it ought to make you a little joyous of the fact that these different churches exist. Yeah. Um, so one question that, one problem that, that we grew up with was that we were basically taught that most black churches were liberal. Hey. Um, so, and, and, and talking about what is liberal, what's not liberal, we were taught to trust white leaders right. and be suspicious of black leaders. Yeah. And yeah. only now, man, you know, in my 30s, over after years, several years of studying this, kind of un, unpeeling that and un, unentangling that, the, I mean, let's just be honest, that kind of language is demonic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's using a man made category, white. And people say, why well, don't use white? It's like, well, everyone at your conference that spoke was white. So whatever you want to call that, <laughs> we're going to call that whiteness. But uh, all the leaders were white. Yeah. Those are the ones you trust. And it's not that you don't trust any black people. It's just they have to prove themselves to the regular leaders before they're accepted. Right. And I can't see how that's anything other than Satan replicating what Paul was talking about when he said, I am of, you know, Paul or I am of all these other leaders. So yeah. it's this term that, that, that I've heard you mention. It's this white centered yeah. view. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something um, that I feel is often uniquely Western and particularly American, mm. right? Because uh, I struggle with the, the, the word we avoided using here in this particular like question, this, this scenario here is racism. That's, that's what it is basically. Like, yeah. what, what valid reason is there to not listen to a black leader? Like, yeah, you, we, we can think about, oh, they tend to be a little more liberal. Like, okay, have at it. Like, I'm, I used to be afraid of that label. Um, mm -hmm. I'm past the point of caring now because at the end of the day, there's always been like somebody willing to label something. Uh, Martin Luther was considered liberal at one point, yeah, you know. Sure. John, John Calvin was considered liberal at some point. Um, so I'm not really worried about that aspect. But the question then becomes: Why is it that we are so distrustful of black leaders? Is it because they keep on addressing issues that seem irrelevant to you? I think then the question becomes. Um, what is the standard for trust? Because there's all sorts of white leaders who say things that um, are relevant to me. Like I, I don't, I don't care about that one single bit. That, that has no impact upon me. Um, when, <laughs> when, when John MacArthur talks about uh, how slavery itself isn't a problem, but it's it's the, mm. the abuse of slavery. Like that's irrelevant to me. I don't, I don't care about what the good form of slavery is because nobody had that in mind with, with my ancestors, you know. Okay. But I don't necessarily. Well, no, I do. Uh, let me let me let me keep myself out of trouble on this one. But <laughs> but my, my 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 question there is what is it that you find distrustful? Mm -hmm. I'm probably a little a little different and I'll probably get the, the little liberal label for saying this or whatever, but I'm not a, afraid of engaging with anybody or anything. Like I'm the type of dude who's read the Quran because at the end of the day, like 
if I am afraid of having my faith challenged, what I end up with is a weak faith. Yeah. Right. So I will have somebody uh, or have a conversation with somebody that I anticipate finding disagreement with because one of two things is going to happen. I'm going to find that what they're saying does not hold up to my standards or I will find myself asking questions. Why do I believe what I believe and why is what they're saying wrong? The question I have is, what is it that is so distrustful of black, about black leaders? Is it about the fact that we talk about injustice so much? Mm-hmm. Is the injustice that they're talking about um, false because it makes you uncomfortable? Or is it false because it's actually imagined? I have a hard time believing that we can look at the history of this country and say that they're making it up. So obviously there's been progress in some areas where chattel slavery is no longer legal. Um, Jim Crow has been eradicated. But if we can look at all of the statistics that suggest there are still some very, very, very real disparities in this nation. The fact that there are now seven black billionaires in the United States, and I can name them off the top of my head right now, compared to (laughs) the couple hundred uh, other ones and then things of that nature. Um, and, and, And the disparities, we often forget because so many of these conversations make it seem like black people are a lot larger here than they are. It's 30% of the population. For every one black person, you have like seven or eight white people in this country. So we can look at all the statistics like, oh, more white people were shot by the police and things of that nature. But like, right. ah, if you, you, the math doesn't work out the yeah. way it ought to if, if race weren't the factor. You know, um, so when we have these conversations, like I know there's somebody listening to this right now getting uncomfortable and I want you to ask yourself, Mr. Uncomfortable person, this is uncomfortable. Um, why are you uncomfortable right now? Am I lying (laughs) (laughs) or, or is this attacking something that you've been led to believe for your entire life? Um, Am I lying? Am I am I wrong about something? Or is the fact that you were saying the Pledge of Allegiance before you knew the three branches of government now making you uncomfortable? Am I lying? Or, or have you been led to believe uh, that a certain virtue uh, underscored some, some of your institutions and some, some of what you have grown comfortable with that doesn't really exist? Am I lying? Or am I tugging the, the the carpet from 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 uh myth or reality that you've uh come to come to live in you know yeah well i think it's interesting the way the way you're talking about this you are familiar with i mean let's be honest you're familiar with how white people do church do theology yeah but our listeners are not familiar with how black people do theology right like this is this is america that we live in where the the black church has its own tradition, but it's developed when it, because it's surrounded by the white church. Right. But yet the white church has no idea what happens inside of a black church. Right. Like, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, our listeners don't know what happens. They don't know what it's like to be in a black church. Yet you're speaking from experience where you, you grew up in a black church, but you know what it's like. You know how white people think. Like what's, what's happening there where, where you can call it whatever you want, there's a name for it, but people don't like that name. But why don't white people have to listen to black people? But oh, why, why, why should they? You know, um, <laughs> the, the only reason that that okay, so 
unless you live in a major metropolitan area or one of the parts of the South where there is a heavy black presence, most of the white people in this country live in situations where they will never have to have a meaningful relationship with a white person. Mm. That goes both ways because because of the way zip codes and stuff work out and what is still like very legal segregation today. Like there are lots of black people who do not have to operate in white spaces. But a white person, or I'm sorry, a black person who wishes to advance in certain areas of his life is almost required to enter a white space at some point. And that's not the case for the inverse, right? So you can live a perfectly full life um, and, and achieve all sorts of American dreams without learning the, the first and last name of a black person, right? You, you, you can do that. There's no yeah. real incentive to unless, unless unity is your goal. Right. <laughs> like unless you wanted to be intentional about it, you wouldn't have to. So um, that's not like an uncommon thing. There's there's lots of, of uh, it's so funny. One of the reasons I stay out of Facebook is because there's always somebody who wants to hop in the comments and have a dialogue about something like uh, everybody's an expert there. Right. And <laughs> I had a conversation with a gentleman who was um, doing that thing that a lot of uh, people like to do where they just no, it's, it's definitely black people's fault. And I was like, OK, cool. And um, I was trying to like shed light on some things where that might not be the case. And his reply was, look, I'll be honest, there's no black people where I live. All I know is what I see on the news. And I was like, cool, let me help you out because um, I've been black for pretty much my entire life that I'm aware of. Um, and I know lots of black people and I also know white people. And the funny thing is that there are times when like nobody thinks about it. Like you don't think about what my life is like what I've been exposed to. And it's really interesting um, because I've had quite a bit of exposure to different things. I grew up in uh, Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy, which is a majority black city. But I went to a private school where I was one of three black people in my graduating class. You know, right. um, I've lived in neighborhoods where the only non-black family was the family that owned the Chinese food restaurant up the street and then going across town to have to be in spaces where I felt like an outsider. These are the nature. Yeah. Um, I'm able to view things that a lot of other people can't because of what their experience like has limited them to. And I don't mean to say that there aren't white people who live in black neighborhoods or white people who go to black schools, but that's definitely the exception yeah. <laughs> uh, to that circumstance. There's nothing exceptional about my my, my story. Right. You know? um, and in that regard, there are certain things that maybe if people would assume a humble posture, what can I learn from you as opposed to what can I teach you? Because, and I say this in, the, the humblest way possible. There's a lot of people who assume a posture of teaching that do not have anything to teach me. <laughs> you're not, you're not, you're not telling me anything I haven't already been exposed to. You're rehashing things. Um, and and I, I'm aware of the information you're presenting, but I'm also aware of a whole nother aspect that because you've never had to have a meaningful relationship with a black person, you don't know about. Yeah. Um, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. I don't want to make anybody feel bad about that. Um, what I do want to do is challenge you to go out of your way into that uncomfortable space, right? So I was at a, I'm at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology of Virginia Union University. Very long name, STVU for short, right? It's one of six historically black seminaries in the United States of America. And every once in a while, I would come across a white classmate. Sometimes I ask them like, yo, what made you come here? Not yeah. to like make them uncomfortable, I just want to know because like, like I said, you, you don't have to, like there's, there's just nothing, lots of white people go, their whole life without interacting with black people. And um, some of them said, you know what? I, I felt like I needed to know what it was like 
to be uncomfortable or to be on the outside of the situation. And I think that's admirable. I think that's courageous. I think that that's Christ-like because Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus didn't view equality with God as something to cling to. There is something divine. There, there, there is a, a God word exercise and stepping outside of your comfort, your, your, your power, your capability, your privileges, and, and experiencing what it's like to be on the margins. Yeah, that's, we get into the heart of the problem here is that white people can plant churches, build churches, grow crowds, and have no black people in that group. They have no, they can build things in America and not need to know, not need to be uncomfortable, not need to deal with racial issues, which means you have churches that are neglected. So I actually had a question. This is for me too. So, so I believe that if you live in a diverse area and you have a predominantly white church, uh, and I put myself in that category too, so it's not like I'm speaking to those people. It's, it's our church too for, for multiple reasons. There's been a failure. Whether it's your personal failure as a white pastor, but something's failed in the system where you're only reaching a small segment of the, of the population. And I believe that more black people don't go to white churches because they're not one of two things. They're not safe there from racism and the pastor doesn't have anything to say to them. Yeah. And so, so a lot of our pastors, I know because I've talked to them, they want to reach black people. And I feel like they're a little unsure of like why, why they can't get any black people to come to their church. And I think those are the two reasons, the main reasons they're not safe. They're going to be exposed to, uh, Christians perpetuating racism or there's just no reason to go for a black person to go to white church because they're just going to talk about white things. Yeah, I think um, I think you're, you're on to something there. there. There's an element of not feeling safe uh, to be sure. Um, there's an element of, of not feeling like your uh, itches are being scratched, but there's also the whole aspect of, of why should I? Um, <laughs> and, and, and I don't mean that in like a callous sort of way. But there's been a lot of efforts to get black people for the sake of saying you have black people. Right. And that's an uncomfortable thing because like you, you watch online discourses and people say, oh, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. One of my main goals in life is to never be the black friend cited in that <laughs> argument. Right. Oh, I do not want your proximity to me to be the reason you feel like you can't be a fool, like, like, like the, the reason that you can't be foolish because you right. can be foolish. Like you can have blind spots. Um, I have a wife and two daughters. I can still be misogynistic at times, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I have, I have uh, uh, family members who've fallen ill with, with uh, various uh, things going on in their life and disabilities. I can still be ableist. I can still be all those things. My proximity to them does not change that. And, um, I have this weird thing. I, I said this on, on, on another podcast. I don't want anybody to think I'm recycling, but it's still true. We have this thing where we're perfectly comfortable saying that we're all sinners saved by grace, right? Like we, we're perfectly fine calling ourselves sinners. But if anybody calls us racist, that is that is beyond being a sinner. Like that makes right. us so uncomfortable. Why is that? Why would I want to yeah. put myself into an environment where I'm going to be subjected to one sin that you are not even willing to admit because it makes you that uncomfortable? Well, yeah. why, why would I do that? You know, um, and yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there are certain things that because 
I'm trying to, I'm trying to make sure I put this delicately. There are yeah, don't um, put it delicately. Put it. <laughs> go ahead, go for it, man. <laughs> no, nah, because I, I think this needs to be handled sensitively. I don't want, I don't right, want to put right. anybody off. I want, I want people to hear where I'm coming from here. Um, there's a desire to be reconciled, mm. but it's not really reconciliation. It's resubmission. People are looking for. They want black people to come back to their churches um, or come to their churches for the first time in many cases, but aren't willing to submit to black need. Yeah. Right. And when I say that, they're like, okay, you want us to come and just blend into what you already have going. But a lot of times my experience is going to be different. So what can you mind from the scriptures that is going to talk to the very real situations I'm going through? Because it's not the same. And the problem we have there is that like, and, and hearing that, a lot of people are, are thinking instinctively, like, what do you mean it's not the same? That that tells me you haven't done the work to have Black people in your church yet, because it's not that difficult to find somebody to have these conversations with. I, I, I can sit here and outline with you at least four issues that, that might be coming to towards like Black people. Like, for instance, uh, the verdict, or not verdict, but the grand jury report from the murder of Breonna Taylor just came in, and there was a collective mourning yeah. from Black people. And what I saw was a lot of people hopping in like comments on Facebook or Twitter or whatever and relitigating the facts of the case in terms of, oh, no, they did like all sorts of stuff. I'm like, no, like you don't understand exactly what is transpiring in the collective soul here. Like you, yeah. you're not aware of. First of all, there is there's nothing wrong with a lament. We're not being unbiblical because we're mourning right here. What this is, the culmination of, of a bunch of messages being sent that uh, we can't count on justice because we will always find circumstances to explain what is happening when it comes to certain people dying, right? And that's yeah. something that is an actual pain point for a lot of people. And if you can't find the time or the space to hold that lament with us, why would we want to be in fellowship with you to that degree? So I say that like when when we're talking about like why, why people struggle to get Black people in the churches because a lot of people aren't doing the legwork to find the commonality to, to to have that shared lived experience with people who look and live differently than we do yeah no, that's yeah it's you go to a white church and you'll never hear anything about brianna taylor george floyd in the service and it's not because there's not feelings for it but they don't feel like there's a need to bring it up at church that's okay. Uh, and here's the other thing. The, if, if you were to go into one of those churches and say the name Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or whatever, you would be accused of being political. Yeah. Because to certain people, that is a political issue. To another segment of the population, that has nothing to do with politics. That has to do with the fact that I, a black man who happens to be a decent size, can walk around right here with a gun on my head legally and have to worry about how I would, I would be received at a traffic stop. That's a very real thing I have to worry about. And you can say like, oh, if you comply, you won't have a problem. But that's not necessarily the case. And right. if you want to sit there and argue with me about that, knowing that at the end of that argument, you get to go back to your life and I still have to live mine. There's no reason for me to come to your church. It's not a safe space. There, 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 there is a such thing as submitting to the experience of somebody else. Like, because I can never know the experience of a woman, I'm not going to argue with her about what her experience is. Yeah, uh, because I, I do not know the experience of, of a homosexual or somebody from the LBGT community. I'm not going to argue about what that experience is. Yeah, um, yeah. I th I think one of the problems 
that all of us fall into uh, in the majority culture. And I can sense that this conversation can could head this way from our, our part and our listeners. It's this idea of what do white pastors need to do to get people to black people to come to their church, which is a white centered way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is, no, the real question is, how can you bear the burdens, the emotional and experiential burdens of other people who aren't like you? Yeah, Because that's what the Bible says. Bear one another's burdens, not bear your own burdens. We can all we all do that anyway. Weep with those who weep. The only way to weep with someone else who's weeping is to somehow enter into their experience. So the question here is not how do white churches get more black people? Because I think that is more of how to make our church bigger. So mm-hmm. us versus them. The real the real problem, the, the practical problem is. There are already black people in white churches. Many of our, mm-hmm. our, our, our listeners have maybe one black person, maybe 10 black people. What Man, I want- Joe Osteen got a whole section. Yeah. Joe, he, got a, he got a whole section. And, and, and I, I know there's, there's like literally a couple of, of white people. There's two white people who attend my church on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is the dude I mentor personally. He's awesome. The other one is my mother-in-law. But I haven't been to that many black churches that got a whole section of white people. You go to the white church, they right. got a set, <laughs> you right. know? That's <laughs> true. I was, I was at a black church this week for a, a, like a worship birthday party thing. I was the only white person there. Yeah. I, I, so, it's largest church, I pull up to the gate. The guy just looks at me. He's like, what? I was like, oh, I'm here for the party. Oh, he's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And th- there's another lady. She stops me. She's like, are you with the group? Because there were special groups coming in. I'm like, no, no, I'm just here for the party. She's like, oh, okay. But like, that was, it was like, wow, I was the only white guy there. Well, well, the question was, what do, I, f- I feel like white people just want more conversations, more talking, more learning, which doesn't help anybody except themselves. What do bl- white pastors need to do to actually minister to black people in their churches. So you minister to black people on a regular basis. What do black people need from their pastor? Not what do white people need to learn or, or what what, what do black people need from pastors? So uh, that's an interesting question. And and the short answer is, is you like the only thing I have to offer anybody is, is, is me. And there's a reason that I'm able to minister to black people because what I have to offer right. them is, is, is familiar, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with wanting to be able to minister to like a, a mixed crowd or yeah. more black people. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But what you need to minister to black people is authenticity. What you need is humility. What you need is 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 a tender spirit. And I'm not speaking in universals because I don't want to paint all black Christians as a monolith. A monolith that is not the case it's why you have black uh christians and white churches that that can happen but uh, and i don't mean to divert too far my question is if there is such a desire for white people to fellowship with black people like how do we get them in our church my question is why aren't more white people going to black churches mm-hmm. right <laughs> and i think if you really wrestle with that you might get the answer to your question like who, what 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 is it about you? Like what would it take for a black pastor to have more white people in their church? Right, right. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I think uh, what we have to recognize is that there are certain cultural differences 
that 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 are that are hard to overcome. And I don't mean to like play off stereotypes, but there is it's a difference. And then again, there, there's not a monolith because there's plenty of black people who feel perfectly comfortable in the white churches and they go there faithful and everything. There's other people they they need certain stuff. I have a friend of mine who's a Presbyterian, um, and to my knowledge, the only black family in his church. And he goes there faithfully. He loves reform theology and all that stuff. Kudos to him. But even he'll tell me like, "Hey, sometimes I, I, I need somebody to take me home." And 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 it's funny. Like listening to that right now, you're confused as to what that means. But like in the black preaching tradition, you know, like what what y'all like uh, not y'all, but what what the stereotype is of the preacher like vamping up towards the end of the sermon and, uh, yeah. and uh, saying, "Oh, won't he? Won't he?" Like all all, all the yeah. stuff at the end of the sermon. Like sometimes I miss that. Yep. And if we cannot understand the fullness of that tradition, the fullness of what that means and what that does to the spirit, then I, I question, I, I want to challenge you to think about whether what the motive for your goal of having more black people in your fellowship is. Because at the end of the day, I don't really care who I'm ministering to. Mm. What I care is, uh, am I giving you, am, am I feeding you properly? Am, am, are, are you getting what you need from 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 me? So when I say like, oh, what what uh, what do you need to offer? Like, what 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 is it that you need? I say myself because at the end of the day, like, I believe that when you're called to serve, you're called to serve a people, and you might not know who that people are, uh, is or who those people are, but the work of the Holy Spirit is to knit that community together, mm-hmm. and there's no shame. And, and your community not including that many black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we Are we trying to minister to more black people because the Holy Spirit is putting that in us? Or are right. we trying to minister to black people so that we can like change the the, the, the little demographic card we put out and make right. church website right. pictures look a little bit better? And I think that question of motives right there will go a long way because at the end of the day, I think if people stop worrying about what the demographics look like, you'd be surprised at how the demographics might shift. Yeah, yeah, it's... <laughs> It's almost using people for your for your own ends instead of ministering to people. Yeah, like in all honesty, there, there was a time when I, I put it on my little vision board that I wanted to be a pastor of a multicultural church, and um, it, it was a noble goal. And I thought about it eventually. I was like, I don't care. I'm yeah. like, I do not care what the people look like. I want to be yeah. a pastor of people who who can recognize God's work in what I'm putting forth, who who can appreciate the, the me that I have to offer and are all about getting after God um, yeah. like, like I'm wired to, right? And the funny thing about that is, like, for the longest time, we met on Twitter, right, man? Yeah. Um, for the longest time, I, I was a part of what they call Black Twitter. It's, yeah. it's funny. People don't know it's a thing. Well, yeah. I don't know how it happens. <laughs> it, just, it just happens, right? But after like some some uh, a couple of tweets kind of took off on me and I turned around and like my following doubled and it was mostly white people. Mm. And the interesting thing to me, and of course it's not the same, not all of these people's pastors or anything, but in being authentic to myself, the people eventually came. Yeah. And I want that to be like a, a, a lesson. Like I said, it's not an exact analogy, but I think there's something there to the fact that when you are authentic to yourself, you will be surprised to what the community around you looks like. Because, yeah, I might say some things that will make you uncomfortable, but I haven't scared you off yet, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, I, haven't, I haven't bordered on heresy or anything. Right, right. So it's one of those situations like I don't, I stop what I start. I stopped worrying about what the demographics look like and uh, focused on living authentically as who God made me to be. Yeah. Let me um, just tonight I was talking to a, a, a young black 
or he's not a pastor. Well, he may be a pastor. I'm not sure. He's, he's in training. And he's in a predominantly white setting. And he's struggling with some of these issues of speaking out about issues. And I want to tell him, I don't know if it's my place to tell him, but I, it's because it, I don't know if I have the experience or, or the perspective. But sometimes I feel like you need to tell some of these young black Christians to get out of the church they're in because it's not good for them. Like when they're in these white spaces who are and the church is telling them to be quiet about justice issues, telling them yeah. to um, focus on certain theological issues and, and don't listen to other people. I feel like they need to be told that it's okay to leave and go somewhere where you're going to be affirmed yeah. as a black person yeah. and not have to pretend like we are all the same clear color and yeah. colorblind. Um, sure. Would you agree with that? Yeah, man, I would take it a step further um, because <laughs> uh, yeah. I've been in black churches for the entirety of my life. Yeah. I think there are times when you have to look at even your circle outside of church sometimes, and it's okay to exit some of those because there, there are times when as a black minister, I've felt uncomfortable about speaking out about certain things because I was afraid of how it was going to get chopped up online and shared mm -hmm. like to other people. And the fact that even in ministering to these black people with my black self, my mind and my black own business, I was <laughs> I was I was nervous about how it was going to be received by yeah. white people, even in that capacity. I was like, that is not freedom. That is not liberty. Imagine living your life under that type of pressure. Free yourself. Yeah. So like just just the whole idea of, of always wondering how it's going to be perceived by somebody was was the most like caged way of thinking and living. And in that regard, I had to free myself from not just like, like, so I don't think there's anything wrong with inviting people to get out of those churches. I would go further and advise them to get out of those sort of, I don't want to say relationships, but that where you feel like you are accountable to somebody to that degree where you can't speak mm -hmm. what you feel is your whole truth because of how somebody might receive it. Get out of that, man. I, I dropped out of a whole seminary before because I can't fight David's battle with Saul's armor. No, you know, it's funny because you just posted about educational. I almost got a job right before I came to the church I'm at now at a fundamentalist seminary. Like I went and interviewed with the president, met him, was waiting for the call. Like I was that close mm. to having my livelihood depend on how well I fit into white fundamentalism. And it's only through God's providence that I never got a call back and I ended up at a church where the people are much more forgiving. So, but I can only imagine where I would be if I had to, because th this is what this brother said to me. He said, I'm having people tell me that I'm going to have trouble getting support for my ministry because of the stuff I'm saying. And I can't imagine that kind of pressure where you're, you're not sure you can feed your family yeah. or, or pursue your calling because you feel like you have to speak out about certain things. Like, right. I feel like those, you got to get out of those situations. Yeah, for sure. And on top of that, like, I, I think that that was a very uh, precious thing you just said. Like, you're afraid that you can't feed your family by pursuing your calling. At that point, it's no longer a calling. That's a job we're talking about. We force people into working jobs by by the by some of the unbiblical standards we put on them. Now we call it biblical, but it's not really. Um, and and that's one of the things that um. I really get frustrated with this idea of, of what is and is not biblical. I can make a biblical argument for a whole lot of things. There's a difference between biblical and godly, 
right? <laughs> so yeah. uh, genocide is is biblical. It's in the Bible a few times, you know. In the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. all sorts of things that are, that are in there. And as a matter of fact, genocide is actually according to what is documented in the Bible, what God ordered in that moment. Right. Are we prepared to say that genocide is godly? <laughs> and I have to say, so a lot of what we do in terms of like policing people and the stance that they're taking, I think we really um, ought to get in the habit of shutting up sometimes. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean that from the best possible place. Um, here's my stance. I, I like to err on the side of grace, if anything. I would much rather stand before God and him ask me, why were you this forgiving to these people? And why was your thumb weighing on them so hard? Why were you trying to script? Like, I would rather be having that conversation. So if I'm going to make any mistake, it's going to be that I gave you too long of a leash rather than I kept you this close. And, and I say that because I, I'm fully, fully aware. Like, I have a, a good friend of mine, a, a mentor, OG. It's a DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary guy. Yeah. And he's so nervous about speaking out about certain things because of how his friends and his cohorts are going to respond. I've been there before, but where I'm at in life right now, I, I, I do not want to imagine what that feels like anymore mm. because that's not freedom. <laughs> you yeah. know what I say? Like when, when you talk about Jeremiah having fire shut up in his bones, that's what it feels like when I'm sitting there trying to like, oh man, I can't say this because I don't know how they're going to feel. Like, no, maybe, maybe it is part of my prophetic witness to say this thing that will be unpopular with some people because somebody else might be saved from a dangerous situation by hearing this. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a shame that a lot of people have to think like this, but to whoever might be in a similar situation, if you're having that same wrestling match, say what you need to say. And if the seats start getting empty, if, if, if people start leaving or whatever, it is what it is. Maybe it's time for you to start writing some books. Maybe it's time for you to find a job teaching at a community college on the side. But it'll be a cold day in hell before you find me uh, <laughs> again in the position of having to, to not preach the fullness of what God has sent me here to preach um, because I'm afraid that it might make somebody uncomfortable. We're perfectly fine with the fact that the gospel is offensive. We don't mind offending certain people, right? <laughs> certain people yeah. who we view as others, but we don't think about how many times that we uh, pressure people into being inoffensive uh, because all of a sudden we, we don't want to be rebuked or corrected. Right. Know? Yeah. And would you say, um, you know, every one of our listeners could list off 10 white theologians that they read or listen to. Yeah. You're getting this though, from black theology, like this, 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 this self-awareness, this understanding of God, this was developed from black, the black tradition. So yeah, from, from, for the most part, but there's, there's another element to think of, right? If you went, or if you're part of the black tradition, and you had uh, or studied under a pastor or a theologian who actually went to seminary, right. just by sheer numbers, the chances are they went and studied white theologians in a white church tradition. And even if they did go to one of the historically black seminaries, just because of the way numbers work, they had to have read some of these people. Yeah. So I don't want to say that my theology was formed completely independent of, of white theologians because it was not. I've read many of the same theologians that other people have, which is something I think is a very important thing to note. It's 
insane that we would sit here and not trust black leaders when they've gone through all the same training you have and add right. another layer on top of it. Right. You're literally limiting what you are being exposed to. So I don't take many of those criticisms seriously because you don't even know what you're criticizing right. at the end of the day. Yeah. So that's, I think that's, that's one of the things we come away with. It's not that the black tradition doesn't know the white tradition and it's just a sort of um, cul-de-sac of, of theology. It's that it's a unique tradition that also knows white theologians that also can talk about Calvin and Billy Graham and whoever else you want to talk about. The real problem with the church in America is that the white church will only listen to one tradition, yeah. only listen to European uh, descendants. Yeah. And it's a shame. So what you're saying is the things that you're saying to people, I, I feel like they're not going to be able to internalize if they refuse to listen to half of the Christian church. And, and, and in all honesty, like that's not even anything. That's, that's, that's a battle I stopped fighting a while ago. Like, I'm not going to try right. to convince anybody because at the end of the day, I pity you if, if, if right. like you, you can't engage with these people. So like I said, I, I will read anything because one or two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to be affirmed in my faith and knowing like, oh, this doesn't stand up because X, Y, Z, or I'm going to be challenged. Either right. way, I emerge with a stronger faith. Either yeah. way. Um, one of the things I've been challenging myself to do recently is to read from black female theologians for the simple fact that their scholarship, their breadth of knowledge is some of the most amazing things I've, I've ever come across. Like they've read all of these people. They're familiar with all these things and they add layers that even I as a black man haven't um, come across. Right. Some people will hear that and they, they think of womanist theologians and they automatically think that's too liberal. And that, that's how you feel. That's cool. I'm not here to convince you of anything. Um, what I am saying is that my faith is stronger for having been exposed to people who are outside of what we consider like the, the norm, normative and authoritative perspective. Yeah, that's funny. I, I, um, I'm even further removed from black women theologians than you are. So this, you know, kind of trying to, re to reach out to the place I haven't been. I've been listening to uh, Truth Table. I don't know if you've heard them. Um, Kimani Uwan, Christina Edmondson. Um, I'm sorry to the third sister. I've forgotten her name, but I know it. And it's so uncomfortable listening to it yeah. because it's they're they're conservative Christians. They and when I say conservative, I mean they hold the same theological core convictions that I do that the Bible is true, that God is real, Jesus died for our sins. And I can tell that they're just I've been so sheltered from that part of Christianity. And so I'm forcing myself to listen to them as as an acknowledgement that there's something wrong with me, not intentionally, but because of what I, I was raised to believe or just what I was exposed to. And so and now I found just in the few months or years that I've been doing it, it's changing just the way almost the way I feel about Christianity or feel about yeah. God or feel about the Bible, which right. everyone wants to sort of like, oh, facts don't care about your feelings and truth is different than emotions. Which that's, the, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. I hate people say that, like, facts don't care about your feelings. Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> like, literally, what we consider fact is, is we accept facts that confirm or affirm our feelings. We Like, there's, there's absolutely, like, this, this idea of one objective truth, like, I get why it's important that we feel that way, but we give it way too much credit. So we got to stop doing that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. If we take about like the, the fact of like, oh, uh, slavery has happened 
everywhere in the world at some point in history. Like, yes, that that is a fact, but you're we're, we're talking about two completely right. different things here. I already talked about the history of racism and everything. Like, that was brand new. So, like, yeah. you want to talk about something to ignore this. Like, your feelings are blinding you to facts. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, people, man, if you go through the Bible and look at the emotions expressed, conveyed, taught, just from Jesus himself, and then say that emotions don't matter, there's 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 something wrong with that. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, you're right. The womanist theologians, you're not going to get unsaved because you listen to someone who doesn't agree with you. Like, that's you, what you're saying. Like, you might not. mess around and get saved from it. Like, <laughs> you know, and, and I mean that wholeheartedly because yeah. okay, you said that when you first started listening, you got uncomfortable. And I'm glad, I'm glad that you experienced that. I, if, I pity people who have not been uncomfortable in their theology before mm-hmm. because that's where the growth comes from. If you think about, oh, you got uncomfortable from listening to a podcast. Imagine listening in the churches where, mm-hmm. where, uh, my ancestors had to hear slaves obey your masters preach right. from the pulpit. You know that's not right. comfortable. Imagine uh, through the civil rights era hearing about uh, how how uh, we were to obey authorities <laughs> and no matter that's uncomfortable. Imagine right now where I'm hearing that uh, because uh, that, that all of a sudden some of the stuff I believe is the greatest threat to the gospel because mm-hmm. uh, that's Marxist, that's CRT, and all of those things. Right. Like that is uncomfortable. And I haven't gotten unsaved, you know, I haven't backed down because of it. One of two things is going to happen when you engage with stuff that makes you uncomfortable. You will be able to strengthen your convictions or you will right. be challenged and, and and grow in them. Right. You know, you know what I'm saying? So I, yeah. I, I would encourage more people to seek out that uncomfortable. Well, you know, you said you might get saved. I think we are living, and I say we in a generic sense, uh, under the delusion that everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. And just because they hold the same theology that we do, that they're a Christian. Right. And I believe that there's a lot of churches who have the same statement of faith as I do, who are not regenerate and, uh, and they're being led by pastors who are not regenerate. Yeah. I think that happens, but, one thing I would never do, I would never be the one to make that call. Um, right. I, I'm not here to call anybody unsaved or unregenerate. I, I know there's some people, your money look a little funny in the light to me, but I'm I'm not God. I'm not the judge. I don't get to make right. that call. Um, yeah. But I, I think you're absolutely correct. And I think that there are people who 20, 30 years into their walk with God recognize like, oh my gosh, like I was, I was off on this. Like mm-hmm. I, I was mistaken about this. And I think that um, we have to be less scared of having that moment, right? Yeah. I think you you have to be willing to find out that you were wrong. Yeah, um, that is. It a, only happens when somebody who knows you're wrong tells you you're wrong, right? It, like you've got to be confronted. It, it can happen like that, but there, there's there's other ways. Like there there are times when you can hear a perspective. Like I would challenge everybody, those liberal people that you're afraid of. Go have a conversation with them. Hmm. Go do it. Go have a conversation with somebody. Go have a conversation with with a with a, a queer affirming Christian. Go 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 have a conversation with with a black liberation theologian. Go have a conversation and find out where your common ground is. Find yeah. out where where that exists, and then find out okay where where do we differentiate? And, and you might not change your mind, 
But yeah. what I have done is I've become a lot more accommodating of different viewpoints um, for the simple fact that I, my experience is not your experience. Your experience is not mine. And the gospel doesn't get to change that. Right. <laughs> the gospel says that uh, Jesus died for the penalty of your sins and my sins. It doesn't mean we have the same sins. It means that the world is as a result of a whole bunch of different sins looks a lot different than God designed it. Yeah. Right. And, and the, the way the whole story arc of the canon, if there's one uniting theme in the canon, it's the fact that God says, whoa, y'all done messed this up, <laughs> right? The idea that any one group of people is like, no, we have the 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 true way. Like this, this is against God's word. That anybody has that right on every single issue is the most arrogant and unbiblical thing possible. Because if you did have the answers to everything that, that if you alone had all of those answers, then Jesus would have came back and wrapped this thing up already. You know, like this is designed for us to have this in community, this dialogue. And I'm not going to sit here and siphon off some people. Well, no, I will. There's certain people I, I don't care to dialogue with because they they, they they tend to try to educate about stuff they can't teach me about. Right. Like if, right. if you're if you're whole aim is to pull me back into the conservative end of the pool where um though i have to read the bible this way i don't want to talk with you because like uh, I, don't, I don't feel like being put in that straitjacket again i've been there before <laughs> but right, right. the only way that you will grow in your faith and in your knowledge is if you are willing to be wrong like that's it. Like you, you have to be willing to challenge yourself, and and that's not to say you throw everything away. But yeah. I have to entertain the possibility. Like, okay, the strongest thing I ever did for my faith was ask myself, what if I'm wrong about all this? What if God is not right? And then I have to walk through the problems of the And that means that the world had to come into existence by itself, and the universe had to. Like, okay, that doesn't make too much sense. And I started poking holes. Like, all right, did God want slavery to happen? Mm. Well, no, that doesn't make sense because when I look at the Exodus story, it said that He heard the cries of the oppressed and He freed them. Like, but then they went on this genocidal mission. So, what what am I supposed to do with all of this information? And, and and I have these conversations, and there's still some things that I hold in tension. But the only thing that happens there is either either I'm going to find out that I'm believing in a lie, or I'm going to be strengthened in my faith and in my convictions. And yeah. We got to stop running from that sort of challenge. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um... I think there's a lot of fear, like you're saying, there's a lot of fear of something bad's going to happen if I read James Cone. I'm going to become a Marxist. I just yeah. read James Cone last week on vacation. <laughs> this yeah. is the, I'm the How'd nerd like who it? takes, I, I took the, the cross and lynching tree. How'd you like um, it? It was amazing. Yeah. Of course, I didn't agree with every single thing he said because that'd be impossible. Right. But that's not the point. Um, that's that book should be read by every single American, absolutely, because, and certainly every Christian. And just since I've read it, because I heard you guys talking about it um, when you were talking to Robert and uh, on his podcast, and I was like, I gotta, I gotta read that book. And it just makes you. What he did was he made me look at things differently, right? Because that's the whole point of the book is that he's pointing out Christians have ignored, intentionally ignored some connections with Jesus' experience and, and black people's experience. And if I was afraid that something was going to happen, I would have missed that entire perspective. Yeah. Or I would cut myself off from it. So, um, yeah, no, that, that I think that's, that's the theme I keep on hearing from, from, the, me, from, from you guys, from scripture, from, um, 
just the books I'm reading is you can't be afraid to pursue the truth. Yeah. And and here's here's the thing. Like I'm a lot less afraid of pursuing that because I don't have anything to lose here. You know, like it's not like I occupy some super duper privileged and comfortable position of life, right? Right. The fact of the matter is, and I'm gonna say this: you, you're gonna get a couple bad reviews on this episode for me saying this. I apologize in advance. <laughs> but white people have a lot to lose if they change some of their convictions on some of this stuff, like you you do. And I say that because we, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but it is impossible to read the Bible in its entirety and not come away with some notion of the fact or the idea that God is a liberator who stands with the oppressed. Yeah. And we've heard some dynamic of that, that, that arc um, for at least six centuries at this point, at least six centuries. Like that was motivation in part behind a lot of the, the, the movements that came out of the Protestant Reformation, right? Yeah. That was uh, the, the reason a lot of people came over to the, the New World in the, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Like, God is a liberator. He's taking us from under tyranny and bringing us to freedom, yeah. right? The moment you attain that freedom, the moment that we claim that we are the land of the free and the home of the brave, the moment that we took on the mission um, right around both world wars, world wars of, of spreading democracy around the world and freedom around the world, liberating all the people, the moment we did that, we kind of lost the ability to claim that God is on our side because we are oppressed. We're no longer oppressed. We own that. Like we're free. Yeah. And that has put a lot of believers in the awkward position of needing to search for a new oppressor hmm. right and that's why we have this complex where we're always looking for oh they're impinging on our religious freedom because they want us to wear masks or worship outside that's why they're impinging on our religious freedom uh, because uh they they want us to make a cake with two dudes in the top of it. They're, they're in, we need to search for oppressors to make sure that God is still on our side. Yeah. And in part, that's why a lot of this uncomfortable language with, uh, oh, Donald Trump is for our, our religious liberty. When you find yourself as oppressed, you search for a savior. Right, right. The problem with this whole dynamic we've created is like, when when your oppression is legitimate and you're looking for that savior, Jesus is sufficient. Yeah. When your oppression is manufactured, then you have to manufacture another savior. Hmm. And that's when we end up lending our witness and our credibility to somebody who is not godly as opposed to the only godly savior there is. So the only antidote to that is that we would look out for legitimate oppression and stand with those people rather than trying to, to hog all of this saviorship for ourselves, if that makes any sense. I would say in the past six months, that is the thing that's been partly from the people I'm listening to, you know, following you on Twitter, reading James Cone, all these things. It's you've got to see it. When you're not oppressed and white Christians are not oppressed. Oh, my goodness. If I can emphasize that we live in the easiest time to be a Christian. Can't imagine how it'd be easier to be a Christian. Than- There's the, the, every single president, all 45 of them in the history of this country have at least had to pretend to believe in God. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? I mean, even with the church shutdown, 
people still having church. People have been having church the whole time. I know people who've had church from March and they never stop. You, you could get away with it if you just put a little yeah, we gotta, you look you look silly. You look goofy when you cry about oppression because you don't have the right to sneeze into your neighbor's mouth without a mask on. Like that's the goofiest thing I ever heard in my entire life. We got literally there there are people around the world who have to tear pages out of Bible and out of the Bible and keep that on them and memorize that one page because they get found with the whole thing that could cost them their life. There is not a single person in this country who is that, that that is their reality, where there is state sanctioned violence against you for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. You can walk outside your front door and scream Jesus at the top of your lungs (laughs) and, and, and nobody's coming for you, bro. (laughs) Like, so that's kind of what I'm talking about. When we look for oppression in the weirdest places and then like the moment you find it, like aha i knew it i am oppressed and god is still on my side like no you're goofy let's let's go find somebody who's actually yeah. dealing with some stuff and let them know that jesus is on their side yeah someone i don't remember who was saying it but they're saying you can't read the bible and not see that god that, that christians should be oppressed oppressed like like the bible says if you follow christ should be oppressed right so every bible believing christian needs to be oppressed to validate their faith. Right. But if you're not being oppressed, you have, I think this is what you're saying, you have one of two choices. You either manufacture it or you go find it. And not many people want to go find oppression. Right. Because then they're not, I, I feel within myself, I'm not special anymore. Like if I have to go find someone who is oppressed, that means I'm not oppressed and I'm just, I'm living a good life. I'm not special. I, I'm not a martyr anymore. And I want to, I want to, I want to challenge somebody to recognize that it's in that space where you find your relationship with Jesus, because that is literally what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. He, if you believe in the divinity of Jesus, that means that you believe that the God of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the universe as we know it, took on human flesh and then went and found fellowship with the lowest and most marginalized people in our society. He went and found oppression. He stood with them and tried to minister to them in that situation. So when we do that is actually when we're doing the best job of imitating Jesus, right? And and, and I say all of that to say that the answer can't be we find people who, who are crying about actual oppression like oh systemic racism and systemic injustice like we can't say no you're imagining that because that's on jesus like jesus went and and walked with those type of people he went and ministered to the woman caught in adultery he went and ministered to the woman at the well with the five husbands he went and ministered to the tax collectors and uh the the, the lame and all of the people at the margins of society who, who were cast out because of their sins or their handicaps or whatever made them unworthy or ceremonially unclean that's who jesus went and found fellowship with yeah he didn't he didn't grab them break bring them back to the synagogue jesus went to the church with those people you know you know what i'm saying right, right. um so it's yeah it's really weird um to me that that we have this aversion to doing that in today's society and what it to me is symptomatic of is a civil religion where we're no longer worried about pursuing the heart of jesus so much as making sure that jesus is endorsing what we are doing mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I say that because one of the reasons I'm not so, so worried about like, uh, I was free by not having to worry about who's filling the seats um, after I say what needs to be said for the simple fact that um, Jesus chose a, a life that was the opposite of wealthy for a reason. 
<laughs> you know, right. um, uh, if, if I'm doing this because I believe that it is my purpose, as opposed to believing that that uh, it, it's my job to maintain the status quo or whatever, I'm actually walking more in line with what Jesus did in his ministry, <clears throat> because he was always willing to find himself on the outside or, or, yeah. or, or to catch some some heat from some things, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, this, this, this is a great conversation. Um, so as we wrap it up, we always include a resource in our, in our show notes. What's, what book, say in the past year, what book has, have you felt the most impact from that you would recommend to somebody? I say year, just a random number, but recent past. All right, I'm gonna I'm I'm call it a tie between one book I just finished recently and one book I'm actually in the middle of right now. Um, don't in terms of being, don't say no, the Bible. No, 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 no. <laughs> that that one too, but but keep 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 that one. Um, Reading while black by Esau McCauley. That one just came out, yeah. So it's yeah. good. I've seen it popping yeah. up a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, and I'll let you. He wrote it for black people, like specifically for black okay. people. But if you're willing to challenge like yourself, then you might find some help there. Yeah. And then um, "Stand Your Ground" by uh, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas. "Stand Your Ground." Uh, trying to remember the sub. Matter of fact, I have it right here. It's uh, "Stand Your Ground." The subtitle is "Black Bodies and the Justice of God." Hmm. And that uh, the first half of that book literally just deals with the. Uh, history of some of the ideals that we hold true in the United States of America before moving into like theological applications um, from a black sample and everything. And, and I specifically chose two super duper black resources to give y'all. Because sure. at the end of the day, it's kind of what y'all brought me here. Like y'all yeah. got already, I know the white people, y'all got them. Um, <laughs> no, that's yeah, they're all around us. <laughs> uh, and we're white too. Um, you know, actually, I was thinking about this with a lot of our listeners, I think, honestly want to pursue racial justice and inclusion and, and reconciliation. I'm afraid that most of them will never get very far because they are going to be surrounded by white people who will constantly when everyone around you or 90 percent of, of the people around you are pushing back against you. Mm-hmm. No one's strong enough to push back. Like, like when I say no one. Okay, Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Like, there's some people who have this this sort of internal strength who can just stand against everybody. But for the rest of us, most of these white pastors are surrounded by white pastors mm-hmm. who don't share their their views or their passion. And I'm afraid that a lot of them will never make it very far because they're not going to get the encouragement from the people around them. Yeah. And that's that's not really. I'm not really. I'm not sure what to do with that. It's just a fact. I think some people need to realize why is this so hard? It's because everyone around you is against you on this issue. Yeah. And if you choose to stay in that circle, it'll always be too hard. So maybe get out of the circle. <laughs> like, yeah, get there's out. nothing, there's nothing wrong. Like being, being a long ranger in community mm. is the Jesus way. And, and I say that because, Jesus always dealt with a remnant, right? Like he he selected the 12 and within the 12, he had the three and there was more people around them. But he often found himself at odds with the establishment, right? Like the, yeah. the, the people who ended up following Jesus were always in the minority. And yeah. Paul had to stand trial before a Jewish council because the, the people of the way were the minority. 
And when you are truly pursuing the way of Jesus, you, you can't expect to be comfortable all the time. Like even in the Christian church, the fact of the matter is what Jesus was responding to was a perversion of religion. Yeah. And that didn't go away just because we shifted the focus on that religion. People will always pervert religion because at the end of the day, one of the sinful, uh, one of one of the, the, the symptoms, the, the, the character, the, the doubt, the outcomes, one of the outcomes of the fall was sinful hierarchies and exploiting power dynamics. When we're all supposed to reign in community together, we now have this propensity to exploit each other. Mm. And religion is often a vehicle for doing that. That's why Jesus talked about how they, uh, the, he points to, to the widow who gave more than anybody, even though she only gave two coins, because it was, uh, they had perverted the system so badly that they had people whose needs weren't being met at that point. Yeah. And I say all of that to say that we cannot lose sight of the fact that many of the people that we call brothers and sisters are in the middle right now as we speak, as you are listening to these words. They're in the middle of perverting the message of Jesus Christ. And when you stand for that, like the majority of people who hear that word are going to pervert it. That's how humanity works. That's why Jesus died, to save us from that. And when you are committed to that work of, of following him, you're going to make some people upset. You might not be popular. You might be popular, but you might not be popular in the yeah. process of doing that. And there's something liberating about owning up to that. So I can come on podcasts like this where I know some people are going to listen and be uncomfortable yeah. For the fact that I feel free right now, <laughs> you right, know, right. <laughs> and, and you can do what you want to me. You you can you can go and, and email my boss. You can send me all yeah. sorts of angry tweets, which I'll, I'll block you pretty quickly. I don't care. Oh, <laughs> um, but but I'm free. And at the end of the day, that's half what makes people so uncomfortable. People got uncomfortable with Jesus because Jesus did what Jesus felt uh, called to do. Jesus did as God would do, and that's what what what, what I'm gonna do. And that's why I'm I'm not too. I'm not too concerned with the, the blowback and the pushback. It's to be expected. That's where the oppression comes in. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was Dante Stewart. I don't know if you follow him. Yeah. Uh, just I think it was in this week. I, I don't want to look through my, my feed, but he said um, he's trying to liberate white people from their oppression, their self-oppression. Yeah. I was like, everyone's talking about freeing black people when, in fact, the oppressors are more in chains to their oppression than the people they're oppressing uh, spiritually. I have this little thesis that if there were a mass migration of white people to traditionally black churches, we would see a magnificent transformation in this country. It's not to say that we have superior <laughs> right. theology. It's not what I'm trying to say here. Right. But the act of what that looks like, of humbling yourself to make yourself uncomfortable for community, that's what it's going to take. The reason that we still have so much tension right here is because in our mind, reconciliation looks like grafting black people back into what they were excluded from in the first place. Yep. And if we were to make reconciliation look like I will humbly submit myself to joining your community and finding where you are yep. comfortable, that's where the healing takes place. I don't, I don't, I don't reconcile with somebody by pulling a sword out of their back. I go by tending to their wounds and that, that, that requires me serving. Yeah. It's not a matter of them coming back in. And I say all of that to say, like, when we talk about liberating white people, I don't imagine it's very fun to be stuck in this place where where there's no more dream to achieve. <laughs> like, right, like right. You, in your mind, like, the, the not, not your mind, I don't want to speak for anybody, but, but yeah. we've already come and made the land of the free and the home of the brave, and everybody else just has to get like us. Yeah. 
God can't do anything for you in that situation. You're just holding on to what you got. Right. Yeah. And the only way that we can identify with an active God is when we find people to serve. It's when we find the least of these. So yeah. all of these people you feel like you're trying to free, like you're serving them in the wrong way. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the gotta, poor in spirit. You got to be poor in your spirit, which means you've got to admit that you're not at the top anymore. And you, I just preached last week on the centurion who came to Jesus to, for, for a servant to be healed. The centurion was at the top. He had all power. He was the most powerful person in town. He had military power. He had financial power. But he humbled himself and went to a local Jewish leader. And it was then that Jesus said, oh, you, you've you got faith. <laughs> and it was only someone who is at the top who lowered himself to kneel at a marginalized person's feet that Jesus says, now you're the most faithful person in all of Israel. Right. Because at the end of the day, right, when Jesus says the first shall be last and the last shall be first, it's not a matter of flipping social orders. And I think that's what a lot of people are afraid of. Like, if we take that too seriously, that means that, oh, now black people are talking like, no, right. that is, um, that is a, a, a theological statement on, on the, the eschatology reflecting the cosmology in which there yeah. is no hierarchy. The first is the last, meaning that you and I are the same, meaning that the image of God means that you are exactly as valuable as I am. Each and every inequality, each and every like uh, uh, imbalance that we see in our society is directly attributable to the manifestation of sin. Uh, it is the result of the fall. Anyone that you can name is because of human sinfulness. And in that one statement that the first shall be last and the last shall be first in the kingdom, that's Jesus saying that when we get there, it's not going to look like what it looks like here. Yeah. Why wait? Yeah. Yeah. The kingdom is both now and coming. Yeah. Um, though I, I would say that white people are very afraid of black people being in charge. Yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> and, I, and I understand it. Like the majority, okay, American history is America doing beat up stuff and then making sure that we take the measures so that nobody else can do it to us. Like right. we're talking about building a wall to keep people who have actually been in this land longer than us out right. of this land <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we came and decided it was ours, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and as soon as the pandemic hits, we got to make sure that the people we want to keep out are still here working. Like, because yeah. we don't want to be out there working because that would change your whole lifestyle. Anyway, on that note, Twitter is where you can follow you, right? Yeah, Pastor for Trey, sure. Pastor Trey 05. Pastor Trey 05. Yeah, that's it. And are you on Facebook? I am. Stay out of that. That's cool. If, 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 I need to start a public page because right now, if I don't know you, I'm not going to accept the friend request. I mean, that's, that's the one. <laughs> I got too many pages of my family and stuff on there. Um, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll start a page one day. I'm on Instagram at Pastor Trail Five as well. I'm on Facebook at Pastor Trail Five. But like I said, if I don't know you, right, right, right. I don't know. Twitter's I, I found Twitter's the place to go. Twitter's where um, you need to find me at. Yeah. Yeah. And then you pastor in Miami. So if people are in Miami, they need to yeah. stop by your church. Right, 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 right. At the Refuge Church. And I I do want to let you know I'm not I'm not the senior pastor at the Refuge Church. Right. Um I'm on one of the, the 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 elders there, one of the associates, um, and I, and I say that because I don't want anybody to expect to come around there and and get like like we we not all that crazy. It's just me. It's just me. It's it's a perfectly normal church, and everybody in there knows Jesus except for me. <laughs> uh, let me let me read your Twitter profile because I, I like it. 
uh, Christian, <laughs> Christian, the Jesus kind, not the Trump kind. I wish I could copy that to mine, but it's too late. You already got it. <laughs> I, I, you'll, I'll say it the way you wrote. I'd be theologizing. Theologizing. Yeah. Theologizing. Man, can you tell I'm white? You don't need to see my face to know I'm white. <laughs> uh, not as outlandish as I could be. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't make me curse. This isn't my burner account. It's <laughs> all the reason you need to follow. Um, hey, thank you for coming on here. I know this. I appreciate y'all having me, man. This, this is helping us more than it's helping you. So I appreciate that. No, man. I, I thank y'all for having me. I, I thank uh, all of you listeners. If you, if you stuck with me this far, I appreciate you because uh, you didn't have to, and I probably made you a little more uncomfortable than you anticipated. <laughs> and we're yeah, we can still all be friends at the end. Um, so, man, it's all, it's always love on my end. Right, right. That, that's good. No, we really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation and challenging everybody, I think. All right. Any, anything you want to end with? A lot of times I find after the, it's like, oh, I, I said a lot of stuff, but I wanted to kind of end with this one statement. You know, as you said, bring us home. Yeah, cool. Here's my one statement. Um, I say things to challenge people a lot. I say things that will deliberately make you uncomfortable, but I want it to be understood that everything I say, I say out of love. And I say that because I I truly and genuinely believe in, in the new heaven, new earth, the, 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 the new Israel, the new Jerusalem. I believe that all of us are going to be united there. But I believe a lot of times we mistake uh, unity for uniformity. And sometimes unity means that you explore the differences and learn to appreciate them. Unity doesn't mean I need to become more like you. It means we need to find where there is already commonality. Um, so all of that to say that I love each and every person listening to this, even if I don't like you, <laughs> I still I still love you. And, and I want that to be made abundantly clear because at the end of the day, my goal is to lift Jesus up. And if that means I have to tear away some of the stuff that we've added onto him that is weighing him down, then that's what I'm going to do. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com or message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice.